Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine. My name is Ryan. And we are your hosts today for this episode of Operation Climate. So to start off this episode, Ryan, I want to ask you, do you know about Harvard University? I definitely have heard of Harvard University. They're a pretty big university in the Ivy League. Awesome. Yes. And have you heard about divestment from fossil fuels as it relates to Harvard? Now that does ring a bell. What, what exactly happened with Harvard and fossil fuel divestment? Yeah. So back in September, I believe, Harvard announced that it would try to move its endowment away from direct investments in fossil fuels. And this was like super big news. I saw it all over social media. And that news kind of created a lot of momentum for fossil fuel divestment at Duke because everyone was like, oh, okay, so Harvard has made this move. What about Duke University? What exactly is Duke doing? So a lot of students became interested in that. Well, yeah, now that you mention it, I do, I do remember this kind of surge of momentum. In fact, I think Duke actually has a pretty long history with divestment. And I was kind of wondering, where, where's Duke at now? Fortunately, we'll actually be answering these questions in today's episode. What progress has been made at Duke? How do student activists and Duke administration stance on divestment compare and contrast? And how can we reach a resolution? And to help us answer these questions, we've got some great guests on today's show. So we'll be talking to students from the Duke Climate Coalition. We're talking to Brennan McDonald and Abby Sachs, who are both undergrads in DCC. Duke Climate Coalition, or DCC, is a student group working on environmental campaigns on Duke's campus. And this year, they're focusing all of their efforts on divestment, endowment justice, and political education. And to kind of give us a different perspective on things, we also have Lawrence Baxter, who's a law professor at Duke. He also chairs the Advisory Committee on Investment Responsibility, also known as the ACIR, which works with the president to make recommendations to the Board of Trustees on responsible investment decisions. And in our case, how to engage in divestment or lack thereof. Let's get into the episode. To understand the future of fossil fuel divestment at Duke, let's first look into Duke's past campaigns and where the university stands now in terms of its investments in fossil fuels. We'll talk to DCC to learn more. While Duke has gotten rid of its direct investments in fossil fuels, uh, meaning that any stocks that it directly owns are no longer invested in fossil fuels, most of Duke's endowment is actually held by invested in third-party asset managers that still indirectly have holdings in fossil fuels. And that continues to be an issue that needs to be changed because we don't know how much money is left in fossil fuels. And it could be a significant amount, given that the endowment, even if it's only 1% of the endowment, the endowment is $12 million. And that's a lot of money. So we all know that divestment is a super, super long campaign at any university. So Great job on you guys for being a part of this. Uh, I'm just curious if you can speak a little bit about the progress that has already been made at Duke uh, from past organizers. The, the first big push came, I think, in around 2014 and, and the years after that. And to my knowledge, not much change came out of that. The university continued to argue against merits of divestment and saying that it would be symbolic. It wouldn't, it's not possible. Um, there, there's little effective change that can come from it. And so I think another push came in 2018, 2019 by another round of people in the Duke Climate Coalition. And while the university still hasn't fully divested from fossil fuels, they did provide the encouragement to the university to 
say that they would they have gotten rid of their direct investments in fossil fuels, which is, you know, it's not enough, but at least it's some sort of progress. To quickly summarize, Duke has very little direct investments in fossil fuels. But its indirect investments, which are most of Duke's assets, are a whole nother story because they're all managed by third-party asset managers. And Duke's administration has been pretty resistant to full divestment from fossil fuel. To understand how Duke's investments are managed, we need to know about a couple of organizations, Dumac and the ACIR. Dumac is the actual company that manages Duke University's endowment assets. In addition to managing this endowment, they manage a bunch of other funds related to Duke too. They work with 131 investment advisory firms and partnerships to do this. And last year in 2021, they managed around $28.6 billion worth of assets. The ACIR is the Advisory Committee on Investment Responsibility. And we spoke to Lawrence Baxter, the chair of the ACIR, to learn more about its role in making decisions about Duke's investments. So could you explain a little more about what the ACIR Council is and what role does it play in managing the investments that Duke has? It has its roots in the anti-apartheid movement in which uh, students were protesting uh, Duke's investment in any companies that did business with South Africa. When I say Duke's investment, I mean the the actual uh, management company, Dumac, that uh, places those investments for the Duke Endowment. That is a separate company, but it's nevertheless under the overall uh, rubric of Duke University. As a result of that experience, a little while later, two committees were formed, one reporting to the provost and one reporting to the president of the university. They were both designed to provide, shall we say, conscience advice to the president and provost, respectively, depending on which committee it was, uh, about uh, the sort of ethical nature of investments that were found to be objectionable. Those two committees were merged into one in 2012, I think it was, reporting to the president, and that is the current committee, the Advisory Committee on Investor Relations. The committee does a couple of things, uh, really three things. One is it provides education on the way in which Duke's uh, endowment is invested and the any sort of moral and ethical questions that come up. Secondly, it can provide direct advice to the executive vice president as to how proxy voting, when that becomes available to Duke on its investments, should be exercised. And then thirdly, uh, the committee, the ACIR, that is, provides uh, advice to the president of the university who has the discretion to accept in whole or in part or reject that advice and can take it to the board of trustees. The importance of that is that the board of trustees is the ultimate body that determines whether we should, for example, divest from a particular company, uh, whether certain types of of slants in investment should be adopted and so on. There's one other thing that um, one should bear in mind, and that is when Dumac itself makes its investments, it does three different things that should be carefully distinguished. Uh, The first is, it has many third-party or outside funds managers, and it will delegate to those funds that it selects uh, the power to make daily investments, which change all the time. Uh, the second is that it, DUMAC also makes direct investments, uh, direct equity investments, for example, and it then does have the power to invest or divest um, and to exercise proxy voting. 
That often leads to some confusion because you will see a significant derivatives exposure in the climate, uh, in the fossil fuel area, but that does not mean we're invested in those companies. It just means we are tracking them uh, and deciding how to balance our risks. So now that we've gotten some background information into Duke's divestment history and how divestment decisions are made, let's dive into the current divestment landscape at Duke. Duke students have been advocating for fossil fuel divestment for years. Several years ago, DCC even submitted a resolution to the ACIR calling for Duke to divest, which the ACIR ultimately rejected in 2019, recommending to the president and board of trustees that DUMAC shouldn't be required to divest from fossil fuels. Why did this happen? Let's hear from Lawrence Baxter. Like you said, there's a new cohort of undergrads that come in every year um, and people are interested in divestment all the time. I recently attended the ACR Open Forum where that conversation was largely focused on fossil fuel divestment. So I guess my question for you would be, are you tired about talking about fossil fuel divestment yet? Or is there still like flexibility in ACRR's position for or against fossil fuel divestment? Well, you know, I, I'm not tired at all. First of all, I introduced that course as a direct result of the student petitions to the ACR. I always knew that climate change was, was becoming very damaging, but I had no, I no idea how severe it was until the DCC produced a memo when I had become chair that was very well done. And I looked at this and I thought, my goodness, this is bad. I, I had underestimated it. And as a result, I thought this is also going to be uh, affected by where the money is, which is financial market. I think divestiture is always a possibility because the reasons that we decided not to do it could change. So we recommended to the president, as did Professor Cox's committee, that we don't divest because we felt that the level of uh, direct holdings that Duke had was so small, and in fact, at present or virtually non-existent, that it would be a symbolic gesture, which we thought, given the systemic nature of the problem, would look very hypocritical, would have no effect on any company, and it's a highly liquid market for the stock and fossil fuels. So all we would be doing, if we had any, would be selling to eager buyers. As to the systemic issue, uh, you know, we're all terribly dependent on products made from fossil fuel. And so it's a sort of global effort that we have to steadily transition away from it. But we can't do it overnight. You know, we all drove to Duke in cars or flew home for Thanksgiving. All of that is very fossil fuel dependent. So we felt like if we made a grand statement, it might look attractive to casual readers who don't think about it, but to anybody who's really serious about it, we would look like we were posturing. That was uh, one of the reasons, but I did say I could imagine it coming back again. But let's say for some reason or other, one of the petroleum companies that actively opposed the Glasgow statement coming out of COP26, let's say that they had vigorously opposed it and they were doing something that was clearly detrimental to the environment and making no effort to move to alternative energy production. I could imagine uh, students becoming enraged to find out, let's say, we were investing in that company. And so then it would be different. So I would never say it's off the table. In fact, I found it one of the most engaging encounters I've ever had at the university and with both undergrads and graduates that it's your world. And so what we said to the president was, while we wouldn't recommend a vestiture because there's 
A, there's almost nothing to divest, and B, we would just look like we were posturing. Uh, we do have areas that could well do with strong support from you, the president, the provost, and the board of trustees. And sure enough, and I, I don't want to claim credit for this because there were many others saying the same thing, that is exactly what the board of trustees agreed to uh, the year before last and what President uh, Price actually announced last year. Yeah, it's definitely true that fossil fuels are quite ingrained into the way that society works right now. So it's a really difficult issue to address. But even if even if it, it may be a symbolic gesture to divest our direct holdings in fossil fuels, do you think that still holds political power in that in that statement? And would that have any meaning to it? Yeah. Um, so in other words, if I, if I can put words into your mouth, will there come a point where it's not just symbolic, it's a statement of morality that we just don't want to have anything to do with it? Um, I think if we had direct investments, that would be true. And if DUMAC was not investigating ESG funds uh, as fast as they can, it may well reach that point. We're going to say we just don't want anything to do with it, just like conflict minerals. So one would have to have a very, I think, more than just a symbolic statement. Because if you make a symbolic statement, even when there's justified outrage, it can often indicate that you're not doing real things, that you're just saying things to get the media off your backs or saying things to make students feel good. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a weapon that should be used very, very carefully at the point where it would make a difference. Yeah, that makes sense. So like at times a symbolic gesture like that could get the attention away from, you know, like that Harvard's doing, refusing to divest from their third third party investments, which is like a huge thing to address. So making those symbolic statements might take the attention away from that. I think so. So along that same line, so we're talking about Harvard and we know that Harvard has kind of said that They'll get rid of legacy fossil fuel investments um, held by different asset managers. And we've kind of noted that the publication of Harvard's divestment has kind of gone to conversation role, right? What would you, what are your thoughts on that kind of symbolism of being able to like spark change in other universities and what Duke's divestment progress is related to Harvard? Right. Uh, it definitely encourages um, other universities, no question. And uh, in fact, after the Harvard statement, I got a lot of uh, emails about, you know, well, what's Duke doing about this? And that's, that is important. And if, it's, if it is something that can be effective, I would not discount it. I would hate to see us just be a sort of Johnny-come-lately that, oh, well, because Harvard's doing it now, we're also going to make a symbolic statement. And because the investors behind the scenes are very hard-nosed, they look at what the real facts are and would not be impressed by that. Yes, we may feel better about it ourselves, but the question is, can you make meaningful change? And I think it's better to focus on other things that still have to be developed. So I mentioned ESG funds. It's very hard to determine what's genuinely an environmentally favorable fund from a greenwashing fund. There's a lot of greenwashing going on. It's just a matter of, you know, where can we be most effective? There's another very thorny issue that I'll raise, but I'm not sure where I stand on it yet. Some of the biggest fossil fuel companies are funding to a large extent, alternative energy export, um, development. And they're doing it because they know that the handwriting's on the wall and that they will eventually be gone unless they come up with other ways to produce energy. Uh, let's assume we were invested directly into, say, Shell. 
and we could exercise a proxy vote to support the shareholder group that forced members of, you know, environmentally conscious members of their board. You remember that happened about two or three months ago. Uh, and uh, Shell is saying, let's say they're spending $200 million each year and developing alternative energy. By divesting, we may well be doing withdrawing the allocation of capital in a fairly efficient direction. Now, why it's controversial is the answer that I've often given is, you know, uh, good for them. They're only slightly making a small chink in the damage that they do. So why should we praise them? But that money has got to come from somewhere. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot coming from government with the Build Back Better Act, and there was already a lot with the Infrastructure Act, but it's also got to come from private industry. And the way you fund new alternatives is you have to rely on the legacy revenue as it winds down. Okay, so to recap, the ACIR has recommended against fossil fuel divestment because they think Duke should focus on areas of sustainability development like seeking endowment funding for Duke's ESG fund or developing proxy voting policies to exercise investor voting powers. This position is controversial, especially with the Duke student body. Let's hear from DCC about why divestment matters. The administration has also claimed that they've done a lot of research in shareholder advocacy instead of full divestments. That would mean having using our shares in fossil fuels to make them more sustainable and more environmentally conscious. So it's like the whole engine number one company investing in Exxon or getting seats on the board there to make Exxon more sustainable. But because Duke probably wouldn't have enough money in those companies, it wouldn't really be able to make a significant difference. So that's not really something where we want our campaign to go down that path. And also divestment in general has a really long history at Duke. I think in the 70s it was, but a lot of the students there convinced Duke to divest any money from South Africa supporting apartheid. So there is success stories. We just haven't quite seen that level of success with this campaign yet. Very interestingly, they say it would be hypocritical for Duke to do that. Those arguments that they have about like the symbolism of it not not being that impactful and the, the hypocrisy argument that they made, at least personally for me, they don't make a lot of sense. So I was just wondering, what would your guys' responses be if you had a meeting with the admin and you were allowed to say whatever you wanted? I would say first that I think it's more hypocritical that we have a Nick School of the Environment and yet we have money in fossil fuels. That's, yeah, that's just way more hypocritical. And we have all of these things that are like striving for equity and we're striving for social justice and Black Lives Matter when fossil fuels are responsible for significant levels of environmental justice concerns and social justice issues. And then also... ESG may not be completely reliable, but fossil fuels, their stocks have just been going down. They're not something that we can continue to use, nor something that the economy is really planning to use based on trends. So it doesn't really make sense economically to keep our money invested in these companies when their stocks have just been worsening over the past decade. The administration argues that you know divestment isn't very effective. So therefore, we should spend all our efforts on, you know, carbon neutrality and other like advocacy and research. But one could argue that the $12 billion of investments could extend, you know, even farther beyond, you know, just the self-contained stuff we're doing on campus. Like $12 billion carries a lot of institutional weights and it weighs on the stock market. And even though it's symbolic in some ways, divestment shows to all the other universities and nonprofits around the world that change needs to happen. So we're in a sticky spot with divestment at Duke because the administration and ACIR have very different positions on divestment than student groups like DCC do. But divestment is still a possibility for us, even if it seems like it's some faraway goal in the future. So how do we move forward? 
Let's first talk about how we can directly engage with decision-making bodies like DUMAC and ACIR. So, so Duke has already divested from the top 200 carbon emitting corporations, but Robert McGrill on, on DUMAC, I think he says that about 80% of Duke's investments are managed by third parties. Yes. So what can be said about their investment practices and does uh, ACIR or we as students have any power over those? We have very little direct power, but we have a lot of influencing power in that we keep asking them, when you're picking third-party funds, are you looking for ESG funds, ones that are environmentally responsible? The answer that we get back is yes. They've had a number of meetings with some of the biggest advisors, people like Morgan Stanley, for example. And whereas ESG funds in general were not profitable until about a year ago, they are starting to show better profits now, and that will attract DUMAC to uh, talking with funds managers there. DUMAC's individual managers in the different specializations are very well aware of the pressure um, to find profitable, environmentally responsible third-party funds. On that, on that note, what advice would you have for students who want to make their voices heard? Totally open. One thing that always makes sense is to read the mandate. It's on our website. And it's quite important because the, the board of trustees approved it. And there's some fine distinctions one has to do there. So divestiture has the highest hurdle of all, which is it has to be a generally accepted view of the Duke community that the activity involved is morally abhorrent. That's a hard, a hard hurdle to clear. But that doesn't mean we don't provide other advice. As I say, with uh, President Price, we gave four other recommendations and he accepted all of them. One was a little spongy, which was to do more work on carbon taxes. But the others were very specific. Uh, I mentioned the seed funding and proxy voting. That was not uh, really focused on before. So I would say it's open to anybody. And I've had some of the best input is coming from you guys. If you're a student at Duke, you may be interested in getting involved in the divestment movement on campus. And good news, because the movement is gaining momentum. Let's hear from DCC to learn how their divestment campaign is going and how you can get involved. You guys have mentioned, mentioned like this push and pull within the Climate Coalition, advocacy groups, and administration. How has cooperation, especially like where where can you guys see room to grow in terms of cooperating with the administration? Any ways they can budge, and any plans you guys have in case of future like continued opposition to divestment? What is actually going to cause the administration to budge, and what is going to actually cause them to see that they should join all the other universities, nonprofits that have started to divest? We are you know going to try holding the student referendum and student government resolutions in favor of divestment to show widespread student support. And we also have are possibly exploring um, using the legal methods used by the Harvard divestment team to try to compel the administration that, you know, in a more forceful manner that they have to divest. That's really interesting. And touching more on Harvard, how has recent news of other universities' successes in their divestment movements, how has that affected the movement at Duke? either with, with the efforts that you plan to hold or other actions? 
it just shows that more institutions are going to do it. And it looks really bad if Duke is the last one, because if we want to be the climate university, like Brennan said, it's going to look really bad if every other institution has divested from fossil fuels and we're still the ones with money left. And it was just like we did it because we were forced to and everyone else had done it already. They argued that getting rid of indirect investments in fossil fuels would be just not usable. But we found an example just a few weeks ago of uh, I think it was University of Toronto in Canada, which is a major university. They said we're going to get rid of direct investments within the, like the next year or two because that's easier. But by 2030, we're going to have eliminated all indirect investments in fossil fuels as well. So it's possible and other universities have done it. It's no longer a valid argument for Duke to continue to say that they can't do it. Yeah, you kind of touched on this before with like the plan of like holding student referendums. And now we're seeing like this push by major universities, Harvard, you mentioned University of Toronto, pushing for divestment. Do you kind of see like this build of momentum for divestment at Duke? And do you think it's required for divestment to be really successful? Or what do you think also needs to be into play here for divestment to really be successful? I mean, I think it's just a combination of the continuous stream of reports every year from the IPCC saying that we have dwindling amount of time or non-existent amount of time to hold ourselves to only 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. In addition to, you know, all of the other institutions um, and universities around the country and around the world that are seeing the need for divestment. I also don't think that we're going to pass the referendum and then the administration is going to be like, OK, we're going to divest now because that's obviously really unrealistic. I think that if we show that a lot more students than just the environmentalists, like the hardcore environmentalists care, it would definitely be good. So besides just signing the referendum, when we start to have actions too, because we are planning on having actions if the referendum doesn't bring about divestment, which again, it's not likely to. So I think just having more students show up besides just the environmental club members would be good. And then writing op-eds, if you can, we've started doing that in the Chronicle and just like showing support outside of signing the referendum so that it doesn't seem like only a small select group of the student body cares about this. And then you've kind of touched upon like this responsibility of the board of trustees, whether it be for like a nonprofit or managing the endowment fund for Duke. And we kind of see that some trustees on the board are very connected to fossil fuel and oil holdings. How do we tackle that conflict of interest? Is there a way to tackle that conflict of interest? I mean, I feel like, yeah, I mean, once people are aware of, you know, that there's people who have connections to big industry and fossil fuels um, and other areas like that, while the board members who have connections to these industries have financial incentives to continue to protect the industries, they also are like public figures and they don't want to be shamed and look bad. So I feel like there is some influence and leverage we have over you know, the views that the public has of them, we can leverage that to pressure some changes. What calls to action or advice do you have for other undergraduates who want to get involved in the divestment movement at Duke? Even if you're not interested in directly becoming involved in the, the Duke Climate Coalition's efforts or other clubs' efforts for divestment, when there are public opportunities to make your voice heard on areas related to investments and other climate change matters, take advantage of every opportunity to to participate in those because the common problem the administration has said is people don't care about these issues. People didn't show up to the forums for learning more about investments. Well, if we all show up and show them that we care about these issues, they're going to have to start to listen. Also, once our referendum is released, sign it. And then for future events, I guess I would just say follow our Instagram, Duke Divestment, to see when we are having future events. And also just to stay educated and updated on the campaign, but also definitely join Duke Climate Coalition. 
So from this episode, we have learned a lot of things. One of them is pretty good news is that Duke currently has very little direct investments in fossil fuels, which is great. But when we're talking about full divestment from fossil fuels, it's a really complicated story because indirect investments are a whole nother complicated issue that is really difficult for us to to get information on and track. Now, as you may have just heard, there seem to be a lot of conflicting views regarding divestment, especially between student organizers, as we've heard from the Duke Climate Coalition and Duke's administration, such as from Lawrence Baxter, who chairs the ACIR. Uh, There seem to be merit to both sides of the argument. Divestment is a very attainable goal, but when we're talking about indirect investments, it does bring into the old shareholder advocacy and just how much indirect divestments really contribute to the issue. Yeah, definitely. But even with all of this, no matter what's your what your stance is on divestment, it's really, really important to get involved in the divestment issue on our campus because it affects you. Yeah. I mean, you definitely don't have to be a quote unquote environmentalist to get involved in this issue. Yeah. So we encourage you to go seek out the resources, learn more about Duke Climate Coalition and the ACIR and also learn more about money and fossil fuels, because there's a lot of interesting connections in that. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Operation Climate. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts to stay updated about future episodes. To also stay updated about Operation Climate and get some cool climate education and climate news, follow us on our socials. We are at Operation Climate on Instagram, at Op Climate on Twitter, and at Operation Climate on TikTok. Head to our website at bit.ly slash Operation Climate Podcast to get a full transcript of this episode and links that you can explore to learn more about this issue that we covered today. And also, we want to hear from you. So give us a rating and or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That would literally help us so much. Thank you. We love you. Okay. Hope to see you next time. Bye.